Jesus is speaking to not only his disciples, but a crowd that has heard the things that he said and has chosen to believe in him. So we'll start in John chapter 8, verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. We won't take long to, uh, we talked about here this recently, so I won't take long to, to cover it. But let me make mention of the fact and point out the fact that there's a difference in believers and disciples. We've got a lot of believers that are not continuing in the word. And remember the, the great commission, go into all the world and make disciples. We think of getting people saved as the fulfilling of the Great Commission, but it's only the first step. Certainly we can't make disciples out of people who don't get saved. So conversion is necessary. But there's so much more. It's, being saved isn't the end of anything. It's the beginning of everything. So he said, then said Jesus to these Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. I want you to notice, folks, that he's saying that knowledge of the truth equals freedom. Knowledge of the truth equals freedom. And there's only one source of truth that will make you free, and that's the Word of God. Jesus, in his last night with the disciples, after the Last Supper, in John chapter 17, John gives us an account of the things that Jesus prayed and one of the things he prayed in verse 17 of chapter 17 is sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. The word of God doesn't just contain truth. It is truth. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Folks, we're in an age, a time where the truth is under assault. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not like it hasn't been under assault all along. You remember the devil, the first thing that he said to Eve when he approached her in the Garden of Eden was, hath God said? His plan, his purpose has always been to challenge the truth of the word. And even in this account in John chapter 8, if we move down a little bit into the, uh, the remainder of the things that were said, Jesus said in verse 44, you are of your father the devil. He's talking to the religious leaders. You are of your father the devil and the lusts of your fathers you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Talking about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. Satan's plan has always been to lie to create doubt for the purpose of bringing deception. The Bible tells us in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 4.4 4, that Satan is the God of this world and he blinds people's minds so that they don't receive the truth of the gospel. Hiding the truth has always been the devil's plan. And that's the Bible definition of deception. Being deceived, it means you don't see or recognize the truth. And if he can keep you in ignorance or keep you in deception, he can rob you of everything God has made available to us. 
We talk about the promises of God in referring to scriptures and, and things that the Bible says that God wants and wills to do for us. But really, there aren't a whole lot of promises in the Bible. See, a promise doesn't continue to be a promise after it's fulfilled. So when Jesus fulfilled a promise, the multitude of promises that God made to us through the Old Testament, through the law and the prophets, now those things are statements of fact. We had a promise of healing through the resurrection of Jesus, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. We don't have that promise anymore. We have a statement of fact that he purchased it for us. So there's a lot of statements of fact, declarations that belong to us. And there are still a few promises left. There are still a few things that the Bible says God will do for us as we approach the end. But most of what we know in the Bible has already been finished. Now we know that God created man, Genesis 1.26. And you know no matter what I title a sermon, you're always going to wind up at Genesis 1.26 somewhere in, in the midst. It's one of those things you can't get away from and shouldn't want to. So God said, Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion over the works of our hands. And then he enumerates the things he's talking about. But God made authority. There is no place, no other place in the Bible where it's so specifically and, and uh, accurately, clearly, plainly identifies God's purpose for man except Genesis 1.26, which says God's purpose was for man to have authority. That's why God made man and put him on the earth, to have authority. Now, what was God's purpose in giving man authority? Well, the instruction that he gave him to dress and keep the garden, that literally means garden protected. Now, you don't have to garden protect something that's not going to be under assault or attack. God knew that the devil had been cast out into the earth. The casting of the devil out into the earth, the rebellion with a third of the angels against the throne of God and God dealing with that and saying that he cast, as Jesus recorded in Luke chapter 10, he said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning to the earth. Satan was utterly defeated and probably that had something to do with the reason that the earth was without form and void when the Genesis account of creation is told to us. See, God said specifically, Isaiah 55, or 45, rather, it specifically says that God did not create the earth without form and void. So something had to make it to be in that case. Something had to bring it to a place where it was chaos. Or as the King James talks, speaks of, without form and void. Well, as we say so many times, God's eternal. He never changes. So if God's original intent for man was to have authority on the earth, then that's his present day intent too. It has to be. It has to be. Now, when God gave man authority and Adam and Eve are on the earth, what does the earth look like? Well, God looked at everything that he made in those six-day periods and said it was very good. The earth was perfect. There was no sin. There was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind in any way whatsoever. And that's what God put man in charge of. A paradise. A perfect existence. 
Now, what was God intending for man to do in that perfect existence? Well, as we said, he gave him instruction to guard and protect the garden, dress and keep it, as the King James says. But knowing that there's an enemy, God basically said to Adam, keep the earth in this condition. Keep the earth in this perfect condition. In other words, God made man, Adam and Eve. He made man for the purpose of having authority on the earth to exercise that authority to maintain this perfect condition. Or we could say it this way. God intended for man, righteous man, untouched, unmarked, unaffected by sin in any way or form. He intended for man, righteous man, to exercise his authority on the earth to bring about and to maintain the will of God on this planet. See, God didn't put man here on the earth and say, do whatever you want to without giving him some directions on what God wanted him to do. And without question, man was intended to exercise God's will here on the earth. And that came to him as an easy thing because he didn't know anything else. Without the knowledge of sin, all he knows is the righteousness of God. All he knows is the will of God. The source of every bit of information he has comes from the spirit of God that lived inside of him because God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now think about what that means, folks. That means every part of this earth, everything ever made by God or intended by God, everything conforms to man's exercise of authority. There's not one part of this earth, there's not one thing that we can name in this earth that was not designed to conform to the exercise of man's authorities through the words of his mouth. The reason the first chapter of Genesis tells us on 10 different occasions what God said. It says again in the end, God said this, and it was. God said, and it was. God said, and it was. That had been real easy and probably more efficient as far as words are concerned to say, and God said these 10 things and then give us a list. But over and over again, it tells us, and God said, and it was. And God said, and it was. God said, and it was. Now, the only purpose for that, the only reason that God would have done that is to show how authority is to be exercised. God had authority over the earth, so he changed it from a a, a place without form and void to a paradise. And he did it through his words. Well, if God is made in the image and likeness If Adam is made in the image and likeness of God, then we would expect to operate the same way that he operated, wouldn't we? And so the exercise of authority, as God's example shows us, is by speaking words. And the spoken word had the power, had it then, has it now. It had the power to bring every part of this earth into conformity to the will of God. And so there's really only one thing that Satan can do. 
And that is to try to obscure the truth. So he makes an assault on everything that's true. Because that's who he is. That's his nature. He originated sin. He originated rebellion. Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. When the Bible talks about murder, it usually speaks of things that begin as thoughts in the mind and then words spoken from the mouth. So Adam was put here on the earth to maintain, through the exercise of his authority, God's will on the earth. Now remember, Jesus tells us when the disciples came to him and asked him to teach them to pray, he gave them what is known in church circles as the Lord's Prayer. And it certainly may have been the Lord's Prayer at that time, but it's not a New Testament prayer now. It doesn't conform to the rules and the conditions on the earth today. For example, the Lord's Prayer is to pray for the kingdom of God to come. The Bible says the kingdom of God has come. It was ushered in by Jesus' resurrection. But there are some tremendous principles and tremendous truth in what we have recorded as the Lord's Prayer. Remember what part Jesus said, thy kingdom come, which means it hadn't come yet, as we said. Now it has, but then it hadn't. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Folks, that's a perfect picture of what the earth was like before sin entered on the scene. It was the will of God here on the earth. Everything God made, he made perfectly. Everything that he made, he made according to his will. So God's original purpose, and therefore his eternal purpose, for man is to live untainted by sin, exercising authority on the earth. Well, he had to deal with the sin problem. And that's why Jesus came. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, that through Adam's sin, one man's sin, death entered the world. Spiritual death came upon all mankind. And we were bound by it. We were taken captive by spiritual death. But it goes on to say, it, since that's true of spiritual death, that it came through one man's sin. Talking about Adam. Then one man's act of righteousness, talking about Jesus, his crucifixion, his sacrifice for mankind is our substitute. His crucifixion and therefore his resurrection has much more effect on man to deliver him into righteousness. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 5. Maybe instead of speaking some of these things and talking about them, we should look at them. We'll start in verse 12. Here's the one that we referred to a few moments ago. Wherefore, as by one man, talking about Adam, sin entered the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Adam's sin covered you. Since he was the originator of mankind, or the original human being, what he did counted for you as well. Skip down with me to verse 17. For if, literally since, by one man's offense, death reigned by one, 
Much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Notice the connection between righteousness and reigning. Amplified Bible says of this verse, shall reign as a king in this life. Well, how does a king reign? With authority. In other words, the Bible is telling us, Paul is revealing to us by the Holy Ghost that Jesus' intent was to restore us to the same condition that Adam was in before the fall. And in so doing, bring us to the place, this nature, this state of being called righteousness, whereby we can once again assume man's original intent or God's original intent for man here on the earth. In other words, God intends us to bring forth his will on the earth just like before the fall. Just like before the fall. Now, folks, I want you to turn with me to a couple of places. Look with me to, to, um, well, let's start in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is writing to Timothy about end time events. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, directly or specifically, in other words, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. In other words, perversions of the truth. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared to the hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Now, the, the part he's talking about knowing the truth, that's a reference to one of the problems that existed in the early days of the church, the first generation of the church, where there were all types of idols that were being sacrificed to and worshipped by the people and so forth. And so these sacrifices, these meats or animals that would be sacrificed to these false gods, they made their way into the marketplace and so there was a real dilemma for some Christians. What, is, what if we eat meat that was offered to an idol? Is that a sin against God and so forth? And so he deals with that particular issue on, in several places in his letters to several of the different churches. But notice even then, he says the way to be free from condemnation, in this case through the eating of meats offered to to, or sacrificed unto idols. He said the way to escape condemnation is to know the truth. And the truth is, God's not offended by meats that were offered unto idols because idols are nothing. So the knowing of the truth is a position of spiritual maturity then. But notice what he said one of the uh, characteristics of the last days would be. He said, some would depart from the faith, giving heed to doctrines of devils and seducing spirits. Speaking lies and hypocrisy. Speaking lies and hypocrisy. In other words, telling a lie about somebody else, saying they did what you did. Excusing your own behavior, but bringing accusation against them. Have any of you ever seen in our lifetime, 
the lies that are told and promoted, promulgated upon society in such a measure as we have today. It's gotten to where some news media and media outlets will put out a false story, knowing it's a false story, knowing they're going to have to go back in six or eight hours or whatever it is and retract a story, but they want to get the accusation out there. Folks, that's crazy. It's nuts. And it's becoming the norm. Well, as in everything else, the ills of society make their way into the church. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 Beginning in verse 1, it says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. That's always seemed like a strange scripture to me. They want to show Jesus the buildings. I'm pretty sure Jesus should know his way around the temple. But apparently the disciples were impressed with the buildings and Jesus wasn't, of course. And Jesus said unto them, see, not, see ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Well, that's what happened when the Rome invaded Jerusalem in 70 AD. The temple was dismantled. Now, the reason that took place, according to historical documents, is that when the temple was, was uh, created, and this is Herod's temple. It was built for political purposes, not because the people believed God. But Herod wanted to make this place so elaborate, so uh, fabulous that the mortar that was used in between the stones contained gold. And so the reason that the stones were pulled apart is to harvest the gold that was used for mortar. And so it happened just exactly the way that Jesus said the temple was dismantled stone by stone in 70 A.D. Verse 3, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Now, folks, I, I have to be honest here. I read over this verse of Scripture for 30 years and never noticed, really, or thought about it being included in the last day stuff. It looked to me like, in the way I read it, Jesus is just saying, now, Don't be fooled about these things. And then began to tell him, tell him the things that, uh, that would qualify as signs of the end. But the first thing Jesus mentions regarding end times, end time events, things to look for related to his coming, is deception. That's the first sign. Take heed that no man deceive you. Deception can come in a variety of forms. People can be deceived just by being ignorant of the truth. But others can be deceived by believing something to be true that is a lie. I, I saw a video here not too long ago where there was, um, I, I guess it was on a campus, college campus somewhere, right close to a college campus. But there was a guy that was doing an interview with people to find out their positions on abortion. 
And so he would ask them, do you consider yourself pro-choice or pro-life? And these young people, of course, products of the university system, all claim to be pro-choice. And so the person that was doing the interview or, or conducting the survey or whatever you would, would call it, he then let them watch a, a short video of an abortion being fo- performed. And, of course, it was edited down and so forth, but it showed enough of the horror of the procedure to affect each one of them. Now, the claim was that they had talked to 20 people. And then, of course, after the video that they watched, they interviewed them again or continued to ask them some questions. And all 20 of the 20 that were interviewed said, well, no, I'm not for that at all. I guess I would be pro-life then rather than pro-choice. In other words, they believed in something, and you heard all the pablum excuses and statements. It's a woman's body, so it's a woman's choice, and yada, yada, yada. But then after they saw it, after they saw the, the procedure, each one of them turned around. Well, why were they believing a lie to begin with? How did they get to the place where they claimed to be pro-choice? Well, we'd have to say that was ignorance on their part. They didn't check out what it means to be pro-choice or check out what an abortion really does and how it operates and how it's performed to make their decision about what side they stand on. And folks... I'm just using that as an example. There's probably an unlimited number of positions that people take without one small bit of evidence or proof concerning their belief. I see people do that with with doctrine, Bible doctrine, all the time. People have formed Bible doctrines, things that they say they believe in, based on no credible evidence or proof. And so they go through life believing in something that's contrary, completely contrary to the truth. Jesus said, take heed that no man deceive you. Folks, that's one of the great works of the Holy Ghost that I think so much, certainly too much of the church fails to take advantage of. The Holy Ghost is our teacher. But you know, there's a problem with a teacher. If the student doesn't want to be taught, then it doesn't matter how much the teacher knows. It doesn't matter what truth the teacher could impart. You can't teach somebody that's not willing to learn. And the Bible is full of things related to that. It talks about in Proverbs, contrast the wisdom or a person that is wise with a person that's a fool. And basically, the bottom line of all the scriptures in Proverbs about wisdom versus foolishness, the bottom line is that a fool thinks he knows everything, so there's nothing for him to learn. And there's so much of the church world 
that's operating according to the will and the, and the influence of the devil. Not because they want to, not because they hate God. But because they're not willing to go find the truth. If the truth, or the knowledge of the truth more accurately, if the knowledge of the truth is what sets us free, what is there that should be more important than the knowledge of the truth? What freedoms are you willing to, to pass up or give away so that you can maintain your position that's contrary to the truth? I'm not willing to give up anything. Are you? And if there's something I'm thinking or I believe that I can see where the Bible corrects me or shows me the truth, I'm perfectly willing to change what I believe. I don't, I'm not interested in being right unless I'm right. So Jesus said, take heed that no man deceive you. Verse 5 is a difficult one for us as well. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now notice he says they'll come in his name. They'll come in his name. Well, that always means the use of the name of Jesus in, doesn't it? For example, John tells, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, John tells Jesus about having come across somebody that's casting out devils in his name. And John tells Jesus, I told him not to do that because he's not part of our group. And Jesus laughs and says, well, I don't know if he laughed, but Jesus said, don't forbid him. Anybody that's not against us is for us. Now we also know that Jesus told us that there would be many that come to him after this age is over, after this earth has completed the church age and say, Master, we did many great works in your name. And he, he will say to them, depart, because I never knew you. So certainly not everybody that uses the name of Jesus is using it because of their relationship with God. You remember in Acts chapter 19, the, the exorcist, the seven sons of Siva. Apparently Siva was a, uh, a priest, a Jewish priest. And he had seven sons. And after they saw the miracles and the things that were done by Paul in the city of Ephesus, they went out to try to duplicate the works. The only problem is they were trying to do it as a formula rather than through a relationship with God. So they came upon a guy that had an evil spirit, was possessed of the devil, and they said, we adjure you. In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out of him. And this evil spirit answered back and said, well, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And it says that these, this one guy overpowered these seven guys, stripped them of their clothes, and the seven sons of Siva went running through the streets naked trying to escape. Well, what was their deception? They were using the name of Jesus. And the name of Jesus certainly caught the attention of the evil spirit that was possessing the guy. But 
they weren't using the name of Jesus because they knew anything about him or the power in the name. Their deception came because they bypassed part of Paul's preaching. They tried to do what Paul did, but they didn't accept what Paul was preaching about coming to the Lord. These guys aren't saved, and so therefore they're trying to use the name of Jesus. They're trying to use the name of Jesus as some new power that they can profit financially from. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Another part of this verse that's difficult for us is when it says that they'll claim that they are the Christ. Now, folks, he's telling his disciples to guard against being deceived. How many people that are really following closely with following closely with God, establishing and maintaining their relationship, close relationship like the disciples did with Jesus. How many of those people are really going to be taken in by somebody saying that they're the Messiah? Seems to me like Christianity 101. The basic foundation is we already know who the Messiah is. So how are we going to be taken in by that? So when he says, I am the Christ, is he talking about people claiming to be the Messiah or is he talking about people in the church that are claiming a new and different way to to God? You're going to have to make that call for yourself. But it does say that there'll be many that are deceived. So whether it's inappropriate use of the name of Jesus or a claim to be the Messiah or a way to God, a different way to God, it seems pretty obvious that the people that wouldn't be taken in by that are the ones that are walking in the knowledge of the truth. Then he talks about some signs of the end. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So we know the condition leading up to the end is the threat of war. Verse 7, 4, nation shall rise against nation. This word nation means ethnos. It means ethnic groups will rise up against ethnic groups. Blacks against whites, against browns, against yellow. Nation shall rise against nation. Now the next thing that he uses, the next word that he uses is kingdom against kingdom. Kingdom could mean two things. It could mean either nations, countries, like Iran going to war with Iraq or something like that. Or it could mean kingdoms, religious kingdoms like Islam. Islam against everybody. And the fact that he uses words that can be interpreted both ways, I look for both things. So he's saying there'll be ethnic troubles, ethnic disputes. And folks, if you look at the world map today, most of the wars that are taking place are ethnic wars at this point in time rather than nations fighting against other nations, meaning countries fighting against other countries. And we certainly know the issue with Islam. So he says, nation shall rise against nation and kingdom shall rise against kingdom and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. We don't hear too much about it now or in our daily lives. But again, if you look at a world map, Much of the third world is experiencing greater famines 
than they've ever known. And the groups that keep an eye on these things identify that there are greater famines in about one-third of the earth territory than have ever been in the history of mankind. Pestilences are just plagues, sicknesses, new things popping up with regularity that resist common treatment or common methods of treatment before. These are things that are ongoing as well. Earthquakes, we know all about them. Again, earthquake tracking organizations identify that on any given day there's about 120 earthquakes around the world. 120 a day. Now, most of them are smaller, so they don't make any headlines. But it's certainly going in the same direction that Jesus talked about. He said, all these are the beginnings of sorrows. Verse 9, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all, na- all nations for my name's sake. So he's talking about persecution against the church. Verse 10, we'll stop with this one. And then shall many be offended. Dear God, who in today's world, in, in America at least, isn't offended? And many shall be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Folks, there's always been political disputes. There's always been us versus them in politics, whichever them you happen to be, whichever side of the political spectrum you happen to be. But there is one thing that's taking place now in our present day that's different than ever before, and that's the degree of hatred between political parties. Well, since the Bible says God is love, and the Bible teaches us that faith works by love, you could well understand that the devil's purpose would be to stir up hatred in such a way that hinders the church from operating as we should. So, so much of the work of the devil in the last days is going to have to do with or is related to deception. And the only solution, the only answer for deception is the truth of the word. That's the only one there is. Again, Jesus said to those that believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. What area of life do you need to be free? Certainly he's talking about freedom from the enemy, freedom from the work of the enemy. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. Again, that's not a promise. That's a statement of fact. It's something that's already been done. It's something that's already been done. It's a declaration. Jesus continued in the 8th chapter of John. We didn't read that far down, but he says, He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. 
That means free in every respect. That word indeed means free in every respect. Now, folks, this goes back to the way that God created the earth and his intent for man on the earth. God intended for, the, for man to be free from everything. And he, when he created him, he was free from everything. He was free in every respect. He's the one that had authority. He's the one that had dominion. He's the one that had the right to use his words to keep and maintain the earth as the kingdom of God here on this planet. The paradise that existed on the earth was a parallel to heaven. It was a copy of God's will in heaven. Again, that's how Jesus defined the kingdom of God, where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. That's God's plan and purpose for you and me, to have things here on the earth just like in heaven. You know, one of the things that seems to me that would be the best things for us to to aim at or should be one of our primary goals is to live in such a way that when we get to heaven, we realize that heaven is so much greater than the earth, but it's still the same in that we're free, just as free here as when we get there. But that's not what heaven's going to be for most of the church. Most of the church is going to recognize that heaven is so much different from the earth. They're going to recognize they're free from sickness and disease in heaven and fail to recognize that we're free from it here. They'll recognize the abundance and even extravagance of heaven. I mean, if you make one pearl into, if you make a gate out of one pearl, that's pretty extravagant, isn't it? If you use gold to pave the streets as a substitute for asphalt, that's pretty extravagant, isn't it? And they're going to find that heaven is so much different than their existence here on the earth. I don't think it's supposed to be that way. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing on the earth that could ever compare to the riches of heaven or the glory of heaven. But shouldn't we recognize the same principles here at least? If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth will make you free. Folks, if any area, every area that we found ourselves bound in or bound by, anything that we know of as God's will in heaven that we're not experiencing here on the earth, there's one and only one answer for that, and that is knowledge of the truth. And the other side is true as well. The knowledge of the truth can bring you into freedom in every respect, every part of life. Because the earth was made to conform to your words. Since by one man's sin, death passed upon all men, much more shall they that receive the abundance of grace And the gift of righteousness reign in life. Reign in life. God expects you to reign in life. It's the Holy Ghost that told Paul these things to tell us. God doesn't expect you just to get by. God expects you to reign in life. 
And the knowledge of the truth will bring us to that place. The knowledge of the truth will bring us to the place where we do reign in life, literally. Through the exercise of our authority to enforce the will of God on the earth. Folks, that's why God put Adam and Eve here. To enforce his will on the earth. To exercise dominion. To enforce his will on the earth. Well, if that was God's plan in the beginning, it's his plan now. And it'll be his plan until the end. So there's one and only one answer for whatever you need in life. And that is knowledge of the truth. Knowledge of the truth. The word of God is the only source of truth that will set you free. So let God be true and every man a liar. Let God's word be true and every other voice a lie. You know, there's a, there's a built-in component to this that I think we fail to recognize, at least early on in our Christian walk. And that is because sin has touched this world, because sin has brought spiritual death to mankind, there's a built-in conflict between man and his environment. Or maybe I should say there's a built-in conflict between righteous man and his environment. And so often we allow the devil's deception. We take the devil's thoughts and we think, we imagine, we conclude that because of the conflict, there must be something wrong with us because we can't seem to make things work the way that the Bible says they should. For example, we'll pick an easy one to recognize. The percentage of people through surveys that believe in prayer as opposed to the ones that have ever had a prayer answered is striking. I saw a survey done about, uh, well, it's been a couple of years back now, maybe five years ago. And the question was of college students, do you believe in prayer? And the answers, the responses were like 75 or 85%. Yeah, oh, yeah, we believe in prayer. Then the next question was, have you ever received a specific answer to prayer? And the numbers went down to about 10 or 12%. Well, I'm wondering, what do you believe in something that doesn't work for you for? But instead, the position of the church is we believe it because Jesus said, whatever you ask the Father in my name, I'll give it to you. Or he'll give it to you. But when it comes to really making it work, the conflict between a sin-dominated world and a righteous child of God is such that much of the church world gives up and quits trying. But look at it from God's point of view. Everything Jesus did was to raise you to a position where you're united once again with God the Father. Just like Adam and Eve were before the fall. And everything that God intended for Jesus to accomplish has been made a reality so that instead of getting saved and going directly to heaven, 
to spend eternity with our Heavenly Father. He leaves us here on the earth to prove and to display Jesus' victory by dominating over his enemy, God's enemy, the devil. Everything about you and me being here on the earth is so that we can rub the devil's nose in what Jesus did to it. So that we exercise authority over sins, sickness, disease, poverty, everything that the devil does and has. So that we reign, so that we live in such a manner that the devil is reminded constantly of what God did for us through Jesus. That's why faith is so important, folks. That's why without faith it's impossible to please God. Because without faith you can't live the life Jesus died for you to have. Without faith you can't receive the things that will elevate you over the devil's territory and over the devil's influence. That's why faith is so important. It's not that God's trying to make things difficult for us. It's that he left us here on display to prove that what Jesus did was greater than the devil could ever do. That's the life he wants you and me to live. I'm not sure where I left you, but let me go back to Matthew chapter 24. We ended with verse 10. Let's keep reading a little bit. Verse 11 says, Many false prophets shall arise and deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Guard yourself, folks. Don't let your love go cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Verse 14 is what I want you to see. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. The word witness means with proof or evidence unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So one thing that Jesus said that's beyond dispute, inarguable, is that the gospel of the kingdom would be preached with proof and evidence. The proof and the evidence has to be the same evidence Jesus displayed through signs and wonders, healings and miracles. But notice what he said would be preached. The gospel of this kingdom. What is the gospel? The good news of the kingdom of God. That God wants things for you on earth. Just like it is in heaven. That's what the disciples went out to preach. That's the commandment or the instruction Jesus gave them. He said if they'll believe you. If they'll believe you're preaching that God wants things for you here on the earth just like he has for you in heaven. If they'll accept that, then he said, do the healings. Heal the sick. Show them the power. Show them the proof or the evidence. See, when Jesus says these things to the disciples, they're not in a quandary or wondering what it means. They understand that they're supposed to keep doing the things that they have been doing already, which is telling people that the kingdom of God is near. Well, for us, it's not near anymore. It's come. But the gospel of this kingdom, the good news that God has through Jesus made a way for you to have exactly here on the earth what you will have in heaven, for you to reign on the earth 
as a child of God and enforce his will here and now. Now, folks, if Jesus said that the sign of the end would be the gospel preached with proof and evidence, signs and wonders and miracles, there's a great outpouring of the glory of God that's on the way. And the great outpouring of the glory of God that's on the way has to be something more than what we saw just in Jesus' ministry or with the disciples. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that anything could be greater in quality than what Jesus did. But it can sure be greater in quantity because there's more of us spread out into all the world. Jesus didn't just say these things will continue. He said the gospel of this kingdom shall be preached in all the world with or for as a witness with power and then shall the end come. The knowledge of the truth will make you free. And God wants you to be just as free here on the earth as you will ever be in heaven. And that's totally. That's a total freedom. That's an absolute freedom. And that's what he wants for all of us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth that's revealed unto us and the great things ahead that we have to look forward to. We ask you, Father, for the glory of God to be seen and known. We pray for it to be upon our church. But more than that, Father, we pray for it to be on every church that names the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior. We pray for an outpouring of the Spirit of God worldwide that this gospel of the kingdom the knowledge that you want the same thing for us here on the earth that you have provided for us in heaven and have accomplished that. The promise has been fulfilled through the finished work of Jesus. We pray, Father, that healings would flow as a river and salvation would rise as the tide. We pray, Father, even as your word says that the glory of God shall cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Thank you, Father, for making it so. In Jesus' precious name, everybody that agrees, say amen. 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 Well, let's all stand. Say this after me. I believe in a great outpouring of God's power in signs and wonders and miracles. Do you really? Well, if you don't, you should. Because that's exactly what Jesus said was coming. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.